0: What do a bunch of little Ewoks on chemo do when the penguin from Batman returns isn't there to lead him around? We're about to find out. So Minions is a spin-off of the Despicable Me movie starring all the Minions. So well, there's a whole herd of Minions, but it concentrates on three Minions in particular. And it shows that from the beginning of time, Minions have always existed to serve the biggest, baddest badass around. And they kind of hit a rut because there's no one evil to serve, so they go out looking for someone. And they come across Scarlet Overkill and her husband, who's voiced by John Hamm, who was the funniest part of the movie. I thought. I don't know why he was so over the top. He made me laugh. Scarlet Overkill is voiced by Sandra Bullock. Ultimately, she wants the crown jewels. She wants the Queen of England crown. She wants to rule everything, and so that's what the minions are trying to do for her. And then shenanigans ensue throughout, and now we have our minion spinoff. Now, the thing about this movie that's kind of tough but kind of worked was the fact that the minions don't really talk. Yeah, they make the little minion sounds, but But they don't actually make cohesive sentences, but you still know what they mean. Kind of shows talking's a waste of time. It's all about body language. But at a point, you're like, all right, I could really go for some sentences. Come on, give me words. Give me English. And then speaking characters enter, and you're like, oh, God, I almost forgot what that sounded like. This is so refreshing. And since the minions don't actually talk, it relies on what it can, which is slapstick. Most of its comedic spectrum really concentrates on slapstick. But the kind of slapstick in this movie is simple humor, and kids were dying. They were loving it in this auditorium. A minion would just fall over on his face, and kids would just roar. This is a quick and
1: brief public service announcement. The Antifa November 4th revolution has been called off due to three of four Antifa members being grounded to the rooms by their mothers. I repeat, Antifa has been grounded. They can't dress up this evening and, and, and play super soldiers, so... The revolution is called off, boys. Now, I know some of you are disappointed because you guys wanted to kill some commies. Trust me, I am too. But it is what it is. We can always hope for next year. I'm Mr. Dapperton, and be sure to subscribe. I'll catch you on the next episode. It does have some conflicting
0: tone where you're like, oh, that's a lot of humor for kids. That's what oh my gosh, the minions in the hot tub with the two fire hydrants, ultimately insinuating a threesome. Good luck like explaining that, mom and dad. I'm not saying I didn't laugh in the movie. The movie definitely did have humor, where I chuckled, where I was like, well, that's great. ultimately, this isn't a movie that's great for all ages. It's not like adults can take their kids to it, and they're like, oh, it's great for all of us. Thanks, Inside Out. No, you take your kids to this, and you're like, this is your time now. You are welcome. It's a classic tale that spin-offs sequels do a lot. A side character or side characters like the Minions were great in a franchise, It was like, hey, let's give them their own movie. But they're best as a garnish. They're best as supporting characters. When you make them the main character, it does lose a bit of that magic. Now their little side jokes that were refreshing in the old movies are just in your face now. You're like, oh, okay, it's just a lot of that, all the time now. And it's not to say Minions is bad. It just doesn't have that magic that we're accustomed to at this point. That magic that links adults with kids so you can watch the movie together and all enjoy it. Ultimately, I feel like this is the simplest review Ever done, but the movie's pretty cut and grill. It has slapstick humor. Kids will love it. Adults will tolerate it. Adults will enjoy parts in the movie, but ultimately they're not going to be like, hey, I want to watch that again. It's family night. Come on, let's watch Minions again. I can't wait. Nah, kids are going to love it. I know that because they were roaring in this auditorium. That's what the movie set out to do, and that's what the movie succeeded in doing. So in the end, I'm going to push this one, and I'm going to say Minions is a good time. No alcohol required. Maybe it's because my sense of irony isn't kicking in right now. I don't think Little Timmy should drink today. All right, guys, so Minions, have you seen it? What did you think about it? Whatever you thought comment below let me know i am going to be in san diego comic-con from now until sunday weekend i'm going to try to review them on top of the comic-con videos i'm undoubtedly going to do when i get back it's going to be a really packed schedule i want to see the gallows but if i don't if it passes me by like hercules did last year it's just kind of the imperfect world we live in but i will try and if you're going to be at comic-con you see me say hi it's always great talking with you guys and as always if you like what you've seen here and you want to see more click right here to see more
2: My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? This is an emotional time for me, dear listeners. It's the last episode of 2017. At the beginning of this year, this podcast didn't even exist. And yet here we are. Episode 35. We've had some wonderful guests. We moved the studio from Kickstarter into a kitchen in Bushwick. I was abducted by a pack of dick-worshipping scorpions. Never a dull moment. Anyways, welcome to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you outlandish and frankly obscene cattle ranching screedlers. Many of you know me. I'm Staffan Lee, the studio manager here at the podcast. Every week, I do the heavy lifting to bring you the conversations that must meet your ears. Did you enjoy last week's Christmas Eve special with comedian Brett Davis? I bet you did you nasty little socialist elves. It's New Year's Eve, and that means that it's time for you to make some resolutions. Maybe you'll stop being a poser this year. Maybe you'll get into CrossFit. Maybe you'll learn how to cook the perfect omelette. I'm not here to tell you what to do. This week's episode is all about jams. We've got a musician that you need to know about. Somebody who is going to blow your minds. Listen to me. Going on like an old so and so. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney.
1: I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass, it's episode 35 of the Humor and the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I apologize for using this computer-based text-to-speech application, but right now I am on a Greyhound bus between Denver, Colorado, and Grand Junction, Colorado, where Claire is going to pick me up in a rental car. It seems like it would be super weird for me to record the intro to this episode while a dude is sitting right next to me. He and I talked a little bit, actually, when the bus was departing the station. He is from Grand Junction. I asked him what Grand Junction was like, and he told me that it was a quote bullshit excuse for a city end quote. Pretty wild, right? Anyways, I hope that you like this week's episode. My guest is Zayn Alam. He is an incredible musician and a founder of the band called Amesha. It was a real treat having him over to the kitchen to record before I left for my trip out west. You will be treated to some of his band's music throughout the show today. I hope that you had a nice holiday. I am about to embark on a little road trip through Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona with Claire and I am so fucking excited. I brought a bunch of edibles from Colorado with me so that we can trip the life fantastic. LOL alright. That's enough from me. I think the guy sitting next to me is looking at my computer screen and reading what I'm typing and that is weirding me out. Here is my conversation with my buddy, Zayn Wong.
3: that good um okay well Zane Alam, welcome to humor in the abject how are you doing this week
4: thanks for having me i'm doing good Sean.
3: yeah you rode your bicycle over here
4: rode my bike here
3: it's a beautiful day in brooklyn
4: beautiful day at a bike from bedside to bushwick
3: wonderful alliteration too we're recording this a couple weeks before it's going to come out it will be coming out on new year's eve uh on the on the end of the year of everyone's lord 2017 um could you talk to me a little bit about Hamesha? Um, how long have you been pursuing this project consciously as uh, under that name? Um, and is it primarily driven by you with a cast of different collaborators or or is the band pretty solid?
4: Yeah. So Hamesha formally as something that was, I guess, you know, given a name and given a real identity as a real project began in twenty. 15. 2013, 2014, I was in India recording what would become the first album. Um, at that time, not necessarily consciously with the name Hamesha or with an idea of it becoming a project, just a burning desire to create songs out of kind of the sounds I was hearing there and how kind of they were reawakening certain memories I had of listening to Pakistani folk music and Bollywood soundtracks. When I came here in 2015, that's kind of when the cast of best friends, collaborators, were brought in. And uh, the first one that was brought in ended up uh, producing the record, um, helping me mix it. And then kind of the next friend that was brought in helped make the music video for the very first single. And then from there on, it just kind of became like a much bigger expanding cast of characters. People who worked on the videos, people who helped with the live shows, and then eventually people who were brought into the live band. Um, But it's, uh, yeah, it's a project where I guess, you know, the songs kind of began with me. They've been written by me. Um, the way that first record sounds, it's very much a Zane in a bedroom, Zane somewhere alone in India kind mm-hmm. of record. And I think it's been fun translating that vision to something that exists live with other musicians and almost has a different reimagined sound.
3: Yeah. And were you, when you were traveling or when you were visiting India, were you carrying, I think I read somewhere that you had just brought a little guitar with you.
4: I actually bought the little guitar. Bought a little guitar Really, really crappy, the best music store I could find in New (laughs) Delhi. It was like the equivalent of like one of those $100 guitars you get at Walmart here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even worse.
3: That's great. And then you were recording sound as you were going around to correct kind of catching the atmosphere of the different places that you were and listening to the rhythms of different environments and things like that
4: it's funny i mean it's just when you're working as an oral historian which is what i was doing for a year you're so attuned to sound and recording equipment how to place things especially in a noisy place like new delhi or north india in general so it's like i didn't realize it at the time but so many hours of those recordings ended up making for an incredible you know, atmospherics, drones, little bells, chimes that became percussive effects. And it was like having that raw material was incredible to make those songs happen. Yeah. But I was completely not conscious at the time that these would become kind of the building blocks of the Hamisha sound.
3: Did you feel like you were attuned to that kind of those weird rhythms that happen around you before visiting India, or did it kind of perk up there because of the change of environment from I mean, you grew up in Georgia, right? Correct. So this is an entirely different atmosphere. Yes. Um is that when you started to notice those rhythms around you? I, I think
4: it was half and half, where there was both a degree of these sounds that I'm somewhat familiar with. I'm hearing in this, in kind of their home context or in a different space than the one I'm used to hearing them in. And then there's also a degree to which I'm recognizing them, but then now I'm also getting to see them in the space that maybe they were intended for. Mm-hmm. So say like Kowali's at a Sufi dargah, where you have like 30 guys so you put like really set up on the floor who are going to go for like four hours just going repetition after repetition, you know, of of the chant of the songs. And when you see that, then I think you become far more attuned to that sound. But also it's like you link that back to the memory of listening to it in the car, driving down 75, you know, doing commutes with your parents. And there's just a degree of like connection where you're just like, oh, okay,
3: yeah, I'm yeah. getting
4: it. And I'm also getting how this could sound in a different context.
3: That's cool. And so the sound for Hamesha comes from, I feel like, a lot of different influences. I mean, you mentioned earlier... Listening to uh, Bollywood soundtracks and things like that, but there's also a lot of post rock in it. It sounds like Godspeed or even like Pinback or something like that. And then, but there's also all of this sampling and looping and things like that that are pretty reminiscent of a lot of the hip hop that was happening probably around where you're growing up, like I don't know Outcast or even Three Six or something like that. I wouldn't say there's a one to one between Three Six and Homagea, but I can certainly see that that sampling and those layering and trying to bring things that happened previously or music that is not, um, hyper hyper contemporary into a contemporary context. So how did you put this sound pastiche
4: together? I think it gets back to an interesting question that I think a lot of people are asking about with music right now too, which is, to what degree is it appropriate to take something from a culture that is not necessarily your own and bring it into your own template, your own vision, in a way that's still respectful and it's still, that's where it's, it's not inappropriate and it doesn't feel gross and like you're a cultural tourist of sorts. Sure. And I think for me, the reason it made sense to kind of triangulate my sound in between these three things is because there's a lived experience behind them. And mm-hmm. even if I wasn't say formally trained in, hip hop i mean i don't even know what formal training in hip hop is but or formally trained you know to like on on guitar or okay. or any like classical training in music um i did get training in the form of like playing in punk bands i did get the for, like training in uh doing it in the musicology in my undergrad years and with indian music and it's also like i'd grown up with these things i was very familiar with them and i think through that lived experience i got the feeling that like you know what having really dream poppy shoegaze guitars with a droned out Vina or sitar along with 808s under it actually makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. And I think I can make that claim based on some degree of investment and experience I have in these things. Um, So I think it was like, it wasn't even super conscious. It was kind of just like, I've listened to these things for long enough and I know there's some degree of continuity in between those, these three that I feel some degree qualified to do mm-hmm. by no means of training or anything but just by means of of having lived with these things
3: yeah for long enough and what about just the technical aspects of it in terms of being able to piece together music um using using an 808 and using a guitar or using sampled sounds from um travels and things like that if you don't already have a full band going in like a practice space in a recording studio it seems like this cut-up method this collage of things together which seems really parallel to your own collage of the way that you've made up your own identity or not made up, but what makes up your identity, uh, seems like also just a practical approach instead of being like, let me get a bunch of people in a room and see if I can orchestrate something. It's like, here's things that I can pull and put together. And so they start to make sense that way.
4: Absolutely. And I think it was partially by necessity that I was doing that in India. So like none of my friends who are musicians who I'd played with, who I'd watched for for years were there and it was really a process of like all right these are the song ideas record them in voice memos have this like one voice memo that's like i think this is going to be the chorus name it chorus possible one record another one i think a bridge Mm -hmm. then start giving the songs names and then there's just like a massive material where it was a degree of kind of just starting to wonder how do i make these how do i make these happen yeah. And then it was reflecting on a lot of my friends had been DJs and producers back here in the US. And I would just spend, you know, hours over their shoulders watching how you do these cut ups, how you do the sampling, how you kind of make things gel all in Ableton. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole first Able uh, album was made in Ableton. It was actually just a process of my myself, t- like teaching myself how to make songs uh-huh. in Ableton, <laughs> um, along with the guitar, which, you know, I knew how to play from from before but um that was actually kind of like the initial foray into making music was can i translate these potential song ideas into something you know actual um so that's yeah that's
3: was there any any structure in particular that you were influenced by in terms of when you have all this raw material and you're like i'm going to put this together in a track and, and you're saying just a minute ago you know i've got a chorus or a bridge and things like that are you trying to fit it into another canon of music that maybe you're familiar with from growing up socially or that your peer network might be familiar with in terms of pop music and trying to get it to maybe follow a format like that even if some of the phrasings or the melodies or the intonation and stuff isn't uh isn't necessarily foreign to somebody's ears, but isn't there every day. But structurally, does it kind of land for them? Because they're like, oh, no, I understand the cycle of this song. It's just in a, it's in a different mode than I'm used to or something like that.
4: Yeah. And I think that's, that structurally is a reflection of what I was trying to do with these, with these influences as well was, okay, these melodies that are coming to me, if they were like 30% different, I could imagine them being like on a cocktail twins or on my bloody Valentine record, but they're 30% different enough where like, I can tell this is not structured in like a really typically Western melody mm-hmm. form. Um, so there's that, but then, you know, if the guitar is doing that, that melody or I'm doing that melody in a way that feels more like a traditional chorus, there's a degree to which all of a sudden it's like, okay, this Western pop song form can be given this melodic content and also maybe some of this you know harmonic content these these drones these uh these really vibrant bells and chimes and all these kind of textures by seeing whether those all gel together you get you start to feel like okay this this is where it's starting to click yeah i think it would be fun in future hamisha experiments to try and invert that yeah and maybe play with you know having uh Maybe the Hamesha dream is writing 14 minute songs that are just one verse, (laughs) Uh but you do them well enough that like, it's really, really hypnotic. Yeah. And it's like Hamesha is doing its kawalis. (laughs) Um, Well, I was curious
3: too, and I haven't, I mean, I guess I haven't uh, like music theory nerded out in a pretty long time, but when I was first encountering some of this music, I could have sworn that there were parts where you were singing in a different uh time signature than the music was playing in Mm -hmm. in order to bring in this kind of more recognizable melody Mm -hmm. whereas the music was doing something different underneath you but then it's constructed in a way where it ends up rounding out like everything kind of works out but it brings in this more recognizable thing to let's say like somebody's western ear who's not used to like these different time signatures and things like that we're like oh okay i got the I can hear the singing i can hear the singing and then it sort of loops you back around as the music gets back to it and so is that um i mean are you are you nerding out on the math and some of that or is it just kind of like a feel? And you're like oh that works that actually works if i do it this way because i know some people get really really in the composition sit down and like these are math equations that they're setting up for why the things round out and stuff
4: i wish i could say i had an ear <laughs> for that because i was actually That was something we studied in one of the classes I took um, in ethnomusicology of the degree to which there's a really intense, you know, way of doing tala, which is of like dropping off beats and then dropping off just enough so that when you get to the end of the cycle, they've all like kind of made up and Uh all of a sudden it kind of locks and snaps in perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And that requires a degree of... some degree of like rational thought almost when you're like doing the thing and it's like keeping the count and like knowing where to fill in the count and then kind of keep the groove. It's not rational really. The system is, the way of learning system is, and the way we're giving it to in textbooks is, but it is a very intuitive thing for them. Um, I definitely am not doing that. And I'm like, I think maybe there's a degree to which I uh, was able to imbibe that knowledge in like an intuitive way and then kind of subconsciously do it but there's, I, I'm definitely not uh Dalla trained enough to be able to like, keep those numbers in my head when, <laughs> yeah. I'm, when I'm writing.
3: <laughs> I like watching those. Um, uh, oh my gosh. What was it? I was watching these video tutorials just cause I, you know, you click through on YouTube and eventually you end up on some video you weren't intending to watch. And it was something about the people arguing in the comments about what the time signature was in Metallica's Master of Puppets, because there's like a weird drop that happens or something like that, but no one can really describe it because it's simply just like a feeling that everybody felt, felt right. But people were like, it's a one thirty second note drop off. And so it's like, you know, this obnoxious time signature that no one's ever heard And it's like, and then somebody's in the comments just being like, Metallica doesn't know what the time signature is. It just sounds, it just feels correct when they're going through it. So I think that kind of, there's something to be said for both approaches though, but I feel like if you're just sort of playing it, it's coming through. Um, What, uh, when you said that you went to India and you were, did you say you were doing oral histories? Mm -hmm. Was that, what was the purpose for that? Um, Like what brought you there? How did you get that opportunity?
4: Yeah. I had uh, done an undergraduate thesis on my own family and how they were split during the partition of Indian Pakistan, half of them staying in India and half of them going to Pakistan. I spent like three weeks in India doing research for that thesis and then a couple of weeks in Pakistan. By the time I was done with the thesis, I was like, I gotta go back. Mm-hmm. I really gotta go back. There's something I gotta really explore and, and, and figure out here that I just started to touch the surface of. So that's why I went back for a year and it ended up being perfect at this organization in India, the, the partition archive.
3: Had you, had you been to India before that first trip? No, no.
4: Okay. And I was probably 22 at the time. 22. And had you been to Pakistan before that? I had been once. And the first time I went to Pakistan was when I was 19. Okay. For a wedding. Oh, wow. Um, Which is kind of crazy because generally if you're, you know, of at least middle class in the South Asian diaspora in the U.S. or the U.K., the parents try and make you go back Mm -hmm. often enough. So there's a degree of still knowing the language, having connection to the culture, to the place. We just ended up never going back.
3: So, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, what was the what was the project that you were doing with? The, I'm sorry. What was the name of the organization? That you the were? Partition Archive. The Partition Archive. And and so, you were were you interviewing people who had been around during the split, or
4: correct? People who had been around during the split, who had come from one side to the other. They often also had like letters, photos, documents, keepsakes, ancient like not even ancient, but like pre-partition. Colonial coins and all this kind of stuff, where I had basically been sent by the archive as kind of you know a collector of of all these things. Wow, how did um, you
3: get folks to? I mean, I assume these folks are quite a bit older than you,
4: much older than me. Yes.
3: <laughs> how did you get them to talk to you? I mean, I'm sure that you know you're being sent by an organization. They're probably like, he's been vetted. But how do you get uh, how do you get a total stranger to talk to you about something that clearly has um, happened quite a bit of time in the past, but obviously is going to have a pretty deep
4: emotional resonance on these people by the end I was shocked that over 130 times people had told me this really intense really really crazy stuff you know sometimes of things that happened to their family members sometimes how they themselves had murdered somebody in the violence Wow! it's like the first time they're telling it to me I'd always just be like why are you telling this little American kid about this thing yeah um, and I actually think that is part of how I got to hear the things that I got to play, like got, got to hear from, from these folks about the partition. I'm clearly like visibly South Asian. Mm-hmm. I can speak or do pretty well. People will only realize like 15 minutes after talking to me that I'm not from there, um, from accent or word choice or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like I do that, I have ancestors both in India and in Pakistan. Um, so I can you know, talk a lot about Lucknow and the history of Lucknow and how you know my family was really involved in the Urdu language and, and the culture of the place. So they're like, okay, he's legit. Like he, they, he knows yeah. he knows what's up, um, <laughs> even though you don't really know what's up. But like, well, you've, got, you've got
3: enough street cred, though. Exactly, so you're not some rando being sent by like a university to come and like sort of do a to parachute in, take their stories and leave. Exactly. Like, okay.
4: Exactly. And then that in connection with, I'm not really uh, party to either Pakistan or India's, like, national interests. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, like, I want this guy to win or I want this guy to win. I'm like, I'm an outsider. I was, like, born and raised in America. And my ancestry is from these places, but I have no... I When I'm talking to you, I have nothing to do with yeah with, with, what you see as the current, you know, situation. Sure, and you're not
3: coming countries. with an agenda
4: yes. at all. Yeah. So they're kind of like, yeah, you know what, I'll tell him that I killed some Muslims or that, like, I did something in Pakistan or, like... I did this thing because he doesn't have, a, like, an axe to grind against me for any reason.
3: Oh, my God. But, I mean, still, that's heavy. It's very heavy. Oh, my God. Wow. Because um, you were you were born in Queens, but raised in Georgia. Is that right? Correct. That's, like, the best Twitter bio.
4: Maybe I should born, change that. <laughs> born in
3: Queens, raised in Georgia. Yeah. I
4: feel like that's really
3: cool. Um, well, we're going to hear a quick song from Hamasha, and we will be right back. finished school in boston very recently you're still in school
4: still in school okay i will be there until may and then i'm out
3: till may Mm -hmm. wow very close Mm -hmm. cool and what will your degree be in
4: islamic studies
3: islamic studies and where are you going to school
4: i'm going to harvard university i've heard of it the big bad bully of boston
3: (laughs) that's cool my friend just finished law school there okay which was very oh they're even
4: bigger badder bullies
3: i'm sure yeah he (laughs) was living in somerville Okay. You cool. live in Somerville?
4: I do. I live right on the edge of <laughs> <live> in Cambridge.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I like that everybody who spent any time there can go in and out of it very quickly. Yes. I had uh, yes. my friend Steven grew up around there and he was, I had him on an episode and he was doing just the best. The best Boston from being immersed in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what is uh, what exactly does a degree in Islamic studies entail? And I'm asking that out of a curiosity too, for when people go and do uh, like divinity school or mm-hmm. studying religious studies and things like that. I'm just curious how much the the subject matter of what you're studying plays into your day to day life, or if you're kind of coming at it from a more analytical standpoint, or the thing is is with
4: I think most religious studies programs, the religious studies is definitely going through a moment right now where it's really trying to figure out what exactly it is, Mm -hmm. and so it's an interesting moment because the doors have kind of been thrown open on what kind of work is being done there. So a lot of people are doing work on reading, you know certain traditions of poetry as religion and just like making that their thing. There's people who have really made media studies of religion, their thing. And then there's, you know, one of the very few tenured professors at Harvard is like, teaches a class on like Egyptian constitutional law after the revolution. So it can get like that insanely specific it's and very have specific, like yeah. four people in a class. <laughs> uh, so that the, you know, you can, you have like a t- totally big variety of, of, of people and interests in even something like Islamic studies. Me and most of my best friends were very interested in Islamic philosophy. Um, particularly kind of, uh, this idea that like, you know, the Islamic world had like a decline why did that decline happen? And what you learn in Islamic philosophy and in Islamic history is like, well, that's like kind of not totally true. Um it's like a very particular way of reading it. Mm-hmm. So um reading Islamic philosophy, I have really loved it, actually in many ways, and it's gotten at a lot of the things that I have been attracted to in Islam in older age. And um, I also take a lot of classes on like poetry and and Urdu, you know, literary culture. Which I have just a lifelong fascination with, grown up speaking the language, but maybe also have that fascination with because I never got to go there until I was like 1920, mm-hmm. and it like had made it up to be a certain thing in my mind. Um, and that all, I think, I'm like all drawn. I'm really drawn to the aesthetic and like the world from which that stuff came from, and uh, it's I think has not like a direct influence on what I produce creatively or like direct translation one-to-one on what I make creatively, but it's kind of nice to be immersed in those texts in that world, in that culture and get to see that like, Oh my God, there's like really beautiful, profound, like extremely future ways in which these people were talking about the way they loved one another, the way we should organize society, like what society should look like once the British leave, how Islam gives you a way of looking at the world that, is opposed to this, like, mechanistic, rationalistic, capitalist, you know, paradigm that's being pushed on us. And all of that stuff is really interesting to talk and think about right now, sure. given where we are in the world at large. Absolutely. Um, yeah.
3: Do you feel like that, um, because you were, you were raised with Islam, right? Correct. Yeah. And so do you feel now as an adult coming to this and being able to study it and things like that, that you're kind of getting at... Um, more of kind of the the micro stuff that's really important about it and and i'm asking this out of a genuine curiosity because like i was raised catholic and there were i imagine though that it would be almost uh exciting to get to the original sources of things and look at them without the distillation process of them having gone through so many different people's mouths before they reach you and telling you that it means a certain thing Right. Does that make sense?
4: <laughs> it totally does. I actually, whenever I go back home, I really enjoy having conversations with my parents about religion now. Oh, no, because Be- now you're all studied. Exactly. I'm all studied. <laughs> but then I, I come back and I have these really, really, you know, when you go out into the real world, you start talking about what you guys have been talking about in class. And they're just like. Oh my God, this is like totally un-Islamic. This is like kind of idolatrous. This is like so against what we've, you know, been taught for a really long time. Huh. And then you and your like scholarly mode, you're like, well, you know, that's because <laughs> in your mosques for the past 40 years that you've been taught is a product of your, your thinking having been orientalized for a very long time sure, and still wow. colonized and hasn't been decolonized. The reason that you think your world has been in decline since, you know, centuries ago is not of your own invention. That's something that's been put on you and something that you haven't really been able to throw the shackles off of and even like so one of my professors has written like an incredible book on how homosexuality as like an identity was not really a thing in the Islamic world, but like homosexual behavior, homoerotic ways of organizing, you know, certain um, groups of people, especially like Sufi groups was like totally a thing. In many parts of, of, of that world, but it just wasn't made an identity in the mm-hmm. way that, you know, we make it here and still do make it here. And they were just able to just kind of, they had different labels for action versus the way that you brand yourself or I, I shouldn't even say brand yourself. That no, 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 no. But I the way, you know, you the way that, that you present that, yourself to the world.
3: Well, that, it, that perhaps in uh, a contemporary Western society such as the United States, that it requires an identity associated with it because of its marginalization, Correct. that that there needs to be a certain power asserted by the individual in as an identity to say, like, well, I've been marginalized because of this behavior. But if it is um, accepted as, let's say, matter of fact, then it, it need not be as much. And I'm not trying to disqualify anybody's yeah. like, identity, mm-hmm. but simply that is that how you're saying it it was just sort of like it was it just was correct okay yeah correct
4: Correct. and it's just you don't it's really hard to understand that unless you can really somehow do the work of trying to recreate the world in which that thing came out of and then that requires you know really deep reading of the languages and to know what the concepts and the terms mean how they relate to each other that's really the only way you can like decolonize your histories of your place Um, and I think it's super difficult. And we talk about this all the time. Like how do you decolonize once it's been so deeply, thoroughly colonized and organized in a certain way and talked about in a certain way. And is it possible? Is it really difficult. Is it really gradual? I think the field is kind of open to, to that question, but I'm really, I'm really interested in how people have historically taken that up creatively and, um, kind of how we could think about doing that now. Cause, uh. I don't know if we've really gotten to that point of the conversation yet, but there's also many other conversations we need to have until then. Are you
3: motivated by, do you see in, because you mentioned a couple of your friends who are also in the program, if I'm not mistaken, are you motivated by, let's say maybe a generational thing where there are younger people who were raised Muslim, um, who have a relationship with Islam and they're more interested in pursuing this kind of decolonization of that faith versus maybe their parents' generation who... It's maybe it's just too late in the game to start thinking about that. Um, does that make sense?
4: That's totally correct. That's totally correct. And I think there's a deg- the the like re- the reason a lot of us end up in these kind of programs or end up studying the thing is because we look at maybe what the situations are like in the home countries or with what the imams and the mullahs are saying about this group of Muslims or this country's Muslims, and you're kind of like, has it. Has it really always been like this? Mm-hmm. It really hasn't been always like this. It's uh, in, in many cases, a lot of these, you know, sectarian rivalries in the Middle East, um, a lot of these, the degree to which fundamentalism has creeped into many of these mosques, it's actually not as eternal as people think it is. Sure. So. Yeah, I,
3: I can only yeah. imagine. Yeah. But that's really yeah. fascinating to think of. Um. I mean, it seems like generations of people from all types of different uh, backgrounds, um, and you know, I have a very limited experience. I've only lived in the United States, mm-hmm. so I'm speaking ignorantly only as as I see people around me in New York and things like that, but it seems like it's a generation of people who are really committed to, in many different pockets, um, actually doing that work, mm-hmm. which is very funny because it's sort of, you know, the running joke is that millennials are these like entitled, <laughs> like lazy, blah, 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 and all these things like that, but they're Definitely the most like critical and inquisitive generation that's happened in a long time and um, seem seem very committed to social justice in a way that's a little bit different than just like we don't want to get drafted to Vietnam. Yes.
4: That makes you sense. I mean, they've left us they've left us a world in ruins in a very different way. Uh-huh. And so us asking these questions and trying to like reconstruct things from the pieces that we've been left behind, I think is. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Um, yeah, yeah, And I think as long as, you know, we, we, we continue doing the work and push it in the right after dr- active direction, it might be a world our parents don't really like, but also it's,
3: <laughs> well, they, they tried to do the same thing, right? Yeah, I mean, that happens yeah. every, that happens every generation. Yeah, yeah. I was very, I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day, but the, um, okay. So the generation before baby boomers was, uh, that's not called the greatest generation <laughs> is it, but that's like what it's nicknamed, like the, in the United States, at least it's like Oof. the people who were. Who gave birth to the baby boomers but i'm like who did they who did those like my grandparents who were they rallying against was it like dirt farmers during the dust bowl or something i don't really, know. <laughs> I don't really understand. <laughs> um, do you think that with the incorporation of your interests in uh these styles of music and a lot of the iconography and stuff like that that you're using in Homesia are you actively trying to dispel any myths or stereotypes that people might have about younger people who are Muslim, um, or who have that faith, or is it just part of you? And it just creeps its way in that way.
4: I think it's definitely part of me. And I think if that ends up happening as a byproduct of, of me bringing these things into my songs, into my creative vision in general, then that's amazing. Um, I also think it's amazing because I've had my own life process of, you know, for some period of time growing up in Kennesaw, Georgia, being like, oh, man, Bollywood is, like, so embarrassing. Sure. Because Pakistani folks, me, so embarrassing. And then you get into it in a different context as an artist or as somebody who's reconnected to it. And then you're just like, whoa, this is really pretty. This is really tight. I can't believe I was ever embarrassed by this. Yeah.
3: Um, well, you have all the social pressure to turn to be, like, everybody who's around you. And I'm sure growing up Muslim after 9-11 in the South was probably felt some different pressure than a lot of people feel to not be into
4: that stuff. But absolutely.
3: Yeah. But people come around. I mean, you see that stuff once you mature and kind of shake off all of these social things and you can see it for what it is and why it's culturally important. That's
4: really cool. Totally. And you also, you don't have to do it the way your parents did. huh. You can, you can, uh, do something that's a little bit more creative, a little bit more for your time and your place and try and draw attention to things that you think are beautiful that you, you know, you've inherited that are, that are in your past and you want, you want to insert them back into the language of now. So they both aren't just a fossil in a museum, but also they're, they're like an, they're an active way active, of, of yeah. your being, they're yeah. an active way of your being and they help you see the world in like different ways in prettier ways and in, in more diverse ways than would be possible if you just let that thing completely be gone. Yeah.
3: Were your folks uh musical or was there music in
4: your home growing up? So it's pretty funny. It skipped their generation, okay. But the it's like baldness, yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of, kind of like baldness. I think musical ability is probably cooler than baldness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my so my mother's dad was his. Like, I think one of his life dreams was just to be a musician, and because of economic pressures and other things, he ended up becoming uh, just working in the Pakistan International Airlines his whole life. But also his whole life, whenever I was with him, I can always remember him having. Some kind of synthesizer, some kind of like, like messing around with like load those drum loops on the synthesizer, trying to find the one that like kind of sounds the most Indian and then him just like banging out his like favorite classics and singing to them. And he, after he retired, he would also run a music club in Karachi that would basically be old people of a certain generation who just want to like listen to old music, maybe have performances and concerts share old gems that they used to listen to, maybe new songs that kind of remind them of what they used to listen to. So he was like, he had that as a dream, and he definitely had ability. Nothing ever happened, and then skipped my parents' generation, and then it kind of just, uh, I guess, awakened um, in me instead. And I remember one of the last conversations I had with him before he passed away was on Skype, and I played to him an Indian Raga that I had learned from my deaf musicology classes wesleyan and i had played it for my mom and she was just like oh my god you've got to show this to grandpa he's gonna be so happy like papa's gonna love this uh-huh. and so got on skype played it to him he immediately recognized the raga and then started just bawling oh man like like he just started crying intensely and being like my color has re awakened yeah yeah in not my children, but my children's children. Wow! And uh, that was like the last conversation I ever had with him. That's and perfect. He also had like a yeah. very nice like Urdu way of saying that like it's like been the colors come back out in them. Yeah. But wow. um, I don't know. There's also the other grandparent was like a really really hard leftist. He was like he was like <laughs> an extreme stream communist, extreme communist okay. in uh, pre-partition India. Whoa! And uh, he was like apparently pretty godless. And <laughs> was forced back into godly ways by my grandmother before they started having kids, but I found that out after he died. Oh my god! And I was just like, "Whoa!" A lot of things yes. have reawakened yeah. So you've got generation. The, you've got this
3: sort of you got this politics, yeah. and then like, uh, but you can play a mean guitar, I'm which like is pretty absent in idea. the generation <laughs> you know before mine. So oh man, that's really wild.
4: Are you, uh Do you have siblings? I have got two younger brothers. Are they? Are they musical? They are both very musical. The, <laughs> totally. The young. one younger than me plays bass. Okay. And the youngest one uh, plays drums.
3: Oh my God! No Hansen? you could have done a The Alarms the coming ala- soon. Alarm son. <laughs> yeah, The Alarm son.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Um, okay. Wasn't gonna. Let's see here. Oh yeah. Um, you and a collaborator uh, in March did a cartoon for the New Yorker. Yeah. Uh do you want to talk about that a little bit?
4: Jason, uh Adam Katzenstein, who I who I did the cartoon with, has been a, also like a really, really good friend of mine since the time that I've known all the other, you know, really good friends and collaborators on this project. And we've talked for so long about collaborating on something. But um I was like, it's probably not gonna be Himesha. Like that that aesthetic is pretty, you know, different from from his but I've always loved his work. Because um, he's the illustrator? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think I had just come back from Mexico in January. And um was at a party and was just, somebody had asked, like, oh, you know, how was your trip? How was coming back? You came back a couple of days ago. I was like, I love Mexico. Totally want to go back. Would consider living there feels good to just be like a brown man in a country like that. <laughs> even if you're not, you know, of, of, even if I'm not Mexican, it felt great. Um, especially after the inauguration, that just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came and I was just talking about what had happened at the airport and, uh, um, people can take a look at the cartoon if they'd like it's on the New Yorker. It's called secondary screening, but I basically um, yeah, I'll was put a just link to it. In the yeah. You know, I just told the story of what happened at this party very, very casually. In ways that, you know, many things that happened to you, you know, growing up in Georgia, post 9-11, whatever, you just, you know, a lot of people face these things. And it's, so it's just kind of like a casual, you refer back to it, you tell it, and you're like, this is kind of what everybody faces. But in the context of like Brooklyn, Williamsburg, New York, friends who are creatives, people hear these things and they're, everybody was just like, dropped everything, was very, you know, attentive to my story and kind of just like hanging on every word I had. And I was like, yeah, you know, they were going through the notebooks. Everybody else in the airport was watching me. They were, like, going through all the things in the bag. And at one point, Jason was like, we got to tell the story. Mm -hmm. If we tell this, like, story right now, I think people, it'll really resonate with people. And also, this is something that people should know. And still in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, I feel weird about being, like, a brown guy who's talking about, like, another airport thing. Like, people know this is a thing. But Jason was like, the specifics of the story are strong enough that we should totally try and tell this as a story. So then I wrote um, the essay that barely narrated uh, the whole experience. And we, um, I gave him the essay and he came up with a, you know, a number of kind of the, the different pieces in the, in the comic for the story. And uh, we went back and forth, collaborated on figuring out what of the essay we wanted illustrated, what we could take out how we wanted to illustrate it. Um, And uh, eventually, yeah, his, his staff, his coworkers, the New Yorker were really into it. And so it's published in March.
3: Oh yeah. And I think that uh, you and I spoke a little bit after it. And I remember you saying something about the experience of going through it and just sort of saying that, and you just sort of alluded to this, but that you thought, well, this isn't anything special. This happens to me every time that I go through the airport. And that was a, I think that was a pretty, you know, for me is obviously like a white person that goes through, like I, it's something that I just know happens and you're just like, well, that must happen. But in the back of your head, you sort of tell yourself, well, it doesn't happen to everybody that I know who's, you know, who has a Muslim sounding name or something. It doesn't happen every time that can't be real. like, we'll say it happens every time, but it doesn't really do- And then you were like, no, this this is why I didn't even think it was special to tell. And I was like, oh my God,
4: Jesus. Yeah. And that's again why I say the it, it, it felt weird for me at the beginning to be like, this is a story that's worth telling right because there's in terms of like the whole airport thing, there's oh yeah, ones that are you know so much worse and that deserve to also be told. I think that's also like a thing we all face in this community of like, you know, is my story really the one that should be taking up this space hmm. um, but also is this the only one that's going to be allowed to take up space because it's yeah. like kind of safe enough? These are things I think you just you think about all the time. That's interesting.
3: Um and in if I'm remembering correctly in part of the in part of the illustration, one of the issues is that you have your like study texts with you. And that and there's this
4: TSA agent who's like, Why are you studying the Quran? It's That's the, when they went really deep, actually, into the interview where they oh were like God. Islamic <laughs> philosophy? <laughs> That like, couldn't mean anything to them. It right. could mean oh, a lot of... I'm, I know. have a feeling I know exactly what it means to them. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Jesus. I was like, come on, man. Like, they're in English. Like, I'm talking about, like, existence versus essence. It's not that big of a deal. And they were just, like, rifling through the notebook, <sighs> giving me eyes back and forth, just being like, no, this is really good meaty stuff. Oh, <laughs>
3: Lord. man. Well, you should have been like, well, sit down and read it. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, you know. Yeah. Um, well... Is there anything that we should be keeping an eye out for in 2018 for Homesha that's coming up? Any uh, any new songs dropping or anything, or is that sort of secret? Or
4: you know, at this point, this uh, I'm using the the time I have on winter break to write record number three. Cool. Um, and that makes me feel like the fact that record number two is about to come out. Yeah, I just feel kind of like oh, I'm in one of those things where it's just like it's been it's it's. Finally coming out. I'm so happy it's coming out. Now I want to get to record three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about this uh, record two, which will be out in the new year. Um, There's going to be, this, you know, there's going to be all kinds of other collaborations, like the first album that come out of this one. It's the first one that has other live musicians on it. So it was an exciting, big learning process to see what it meant to go from Zane songs, bedroom production, versus being like, okay drummer bassist Mm -hmm. other guitarist how do we make this work
3: because you're you're suddenly um oh my god what oh uh you're like in the brian wilson role now
4: yeah uh, oh god brian wilson not not a big comparison (laughs) not to be
3: mean to your band members or say them but i just mean like you're like in a directorial role which is really different than just being like i'm gonna move this thing over here and set it down Listen to it a few times. Ah, it doesn't really work. I'm gonna take that out and put something else in. But when you bring in the when you bring in the bodies and they're doing the work, and then you're like, can you do this thing? Mm. No, do it this way. Yeah, Duh, do it this way. And you're like dealing with it's not just moving yeah. things around abstractly. It's yeah. kind of it's a totally different thing. I'm sure the energy is really different though too, which is probably very so exciting. Like yeah. to have people and they're feeding off of each other and being able to like make eye contact when you like hit the right thing or something
4: is totally yeah. Also because the song still went from. The exact production that they had on the first record, me recording them as demos at home, me playing the bass parts, the guitar parts, doing the percussion, and then getting to hear those demos reinvented yeah. with a with band was kind of like, a oh, wow.
3: Wait, so all the stuff that I've heard that's been put out so far was just in your room? well Able it was in what? my room a lot
4: of it was re-recorded at a studio here in new york okay um and you know some of the bass parts were changed to be a real bass guitar and some of the guitar parts were recorded on a guitar that wasn't that crappy hundred dollar indian guitar right but the, um, but the
3: but the first record wasn't full band no not okay. at all wow yeah okay oh i'm excited to hear that yeah yeah because i saw a um Video of you all playing uh, in Knockdown Center. That yeah. was pretty cool. That yeah. was just the four of you playing. Um, yeah. So, record number two is coming out. You're writing record number three. Correct. That's exciting. I like hearing whenever we just had at uh, Dia, where I've been teaching. Uh, there's a program here in the city. I teach at the one in Beacon, but the one in the city. They had this artist from LA named Daniel Joseph Martinez, who I'd met years ago as a he was a visiting artist in Oregon when I was working at this college and. The students were asking me, you know, like, "Well, you just finished this project, like, or you, this project is on view or something. Like, why are you taking a rest?" And he's like, "I'm sick of this project. No, I'm working on the next one or something." And I was like, "That's always everybody that I like. That's always the case. They're like, this thing's finally coming out, and I mm-hmm. am on to the next one." Um, well, what about the? Uh, can you talk before we go a little bit about the aesthetic that you kind of cultivated for the live performances of Himatia? because it's a really specific, look, everybody's in white. You've got, somebody's doing the visuals for Correct. you that you collaborate with who Correct. has done some of the videos too. Is that right? Yes. Um, how did, how did you come up with that?
4: I always thought that Amesha live should be, you know, because it's also, it was a transformation of these demo songs into a live setting. I also kind of thought like, okay, there should be a degree of, It not just being the songs reimagined or transformed, but I should also kind of imagine what the thing looks like live, which has maybe not that much to do with the album, but still has something to do with the overall aesthetic of the project and what it's referencing and what it's trying to draw upon. Um, The white kurta, it's called a kurta pajama that I'm wearing, is what everybody in Lucknow would wear. Lucknow is my ancestral city, and it's where I spent the first four months of my fellowship. And I remember whenever I would see these older men wearing their corta pajamas, you know, every morning, perfectly ironed, perfectly tailored to fit them, I'd just be like, whenever I see them wearing like a button down shirt and like a like weird pair of jeans, I'd always just be like, you should wear your corta pajama. You look like straight out of a movie or a painting in how gracefully you carry yourself in this. I've heard that very much looks your own. I also took a huge liking touring it there because it's really light and good for that extremely hot weather. Yeah. Um, And so that was kind of what, why I brought that into uh, me performing it live. And then usually people who are Muslims and people who are from my background in the family would usually wear all white ones. So that's why I wear the all white one. And then when Ethan Young, who's uh, the filmmaker who's, Does, has been doing the live visuals and also done a couple of the videos. So another one of my best friends, somebody who I, we almost are starting to have like that mind meld where things can kind of be like unsaid and just understood between one another, which is really, really a beautiful thing to have uh, in a collaborative, creative, um, you know, relationship like that. He, as soon as I had this idea of what I wanted it to look like, was thinking, okay, let's just get everybody to wear white. And let me start drawing on references that you're giving me that we find collectively. Give me footage. Give me photos, things that you have. And let's talk about how we can manipulate them, have them projected on you. And then the you wearing all white is connected to the, you know, the aesthetic of the project in like a historical way and like a personal way. But then it also is serving a very functional purpose. Yeah, you become a canvas for what he's doing. Exactly. And so... I think we, I intended to just try it in the first performance and like see how it went. And as soon as it went, I was like, okay, this is going (laughs) to (laughs) stick.
3: Results in some really good photos too. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks for really good photos. (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, Zane, thank you so much. Uh, Really looking forward to the next record and the record after that, that will be coming out. You know, 2019, I don't know how these things go. (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, thank you so much to everybody else out there. Happy New Year's Eve. Uh, Let's have a better 2018, if at all possible. And, uh, you know, thanks for sticking with me through uh, this year. (laughs) See you soon. Bye bye.
5: Yeah. Shan come